All right, open up to Genesis chapter 1. We'll definitely be talking about verses 1 to 25. Now let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we come to you today with great thankfulness in our hearts because we know that what you have said in your word is faithful and true. Its principles and its precepts and its promises are forever settled in heaven. It's the bedrock upon which we can stand Thank you for sending your son and for his obedience to you, even to the point of death on a cross, to purge us of our sins forever. So we come lifting up no other name to you but his and asking you in his name that during this next hour, nothing would hinder the working of your spirit, including that buzzing noise. (laughs) May your spirit have unrestrained liberty to work in our hearts. Prevent us, Father, by our thoughts our distractions, attitudes, or even doubts from grieving your spirit or quenching what he would what he would do here this morning. Lord, we ask that you would give us the peace in knowing that this world created by you and sustained by you will one day be regenerated by you. And meanwhile, in your great wisdom and power, you are bringing all things to pass to accomplish that end. And for our part, May we continue to be your faithful stewards, occupying until you return. And now may you, by your word activated by your spirit, bear fruit here this morning and be pleased. May you say it's good. May you be pleased with the spiritual hunger and the growth of those who belong to thee. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do hear a bit of a ringing, Terry, wherever Terry went. Um, As we said in our introduction study last time um, to this long study, I don't know how long it's going to be. It's going to be a long, long time, Um, unless the Lord returns, and then it'll be cut off abruptly (laughs) to be continued right up there. But as I said in our introduction to this study on Old Testament Christology, seeing Christ in the Old Testament scriptures, the story of Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem, did it? No. It really has no beginning. The story of Jesus has no beginning because he is eternal God. However, as far as the written record of the story of Jesus is concerned, where do we go? We go to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. What does Genesis mean? Beginnings or origins. We go to the the book of beginnings. Now, although most people associate the book of Genesis with the creation account, you know, in Adam and Eve and the fall and the, um, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and all those kind of things, the early history of mankind, its primary purpose is to introduce Jesus. However, that introduction of Jesus, that presentation of Jesus, was not done in an overtly obvious way. It was done through prophecies and picture types, such as Joseph, and hidden truths that were not fully recognized until the sunlight of the New Testament, and how do you think I spell sun? (laughs) S-O-N, the sunlight of the New Testament chased away all the ambiguous shadows, unlocked the mysteries, and saw the fulfillment of its prophecies and types. In the beginning, say it with me, the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Those opening words of the scripture 
are astounding. They are absolutely impressive and profound. Anyone who honestly thinks about those words has to be captivated by how succinct they are. I mean, how compact that statement is, what it says in so few words, and how unapologetic that sentence is, and how authoritative it is, as well as how scientific it is. And we'll talk about that later. From its onset, Scripture declares God to be the source of what? Everything. There's no Hebrew word for universe, so they say heaven and the earth. It means universe. It unashamedly declares God to be the source of everything. It doesn't argue his existence. It simply declares his existence. In the beginning, God created it all. It straightforwardly informs us that the universe did not just come into existence by chance or by some random accident, but that it was created by the eternal God. Is the universe eternal? Did it always exist? No, it came into existence by the one who is himself eternal. So nothingness did not just suddenly produce Somethingness. Don't you like my made up words? <laughs> and that is a concept, because that's a concept that nothingness produced somethingness. That's a concept that runs contrary to all the laws of nature and science, true science. And adding, I don't care how many billions of years you add to that, it doesn't change the fact that something cannot just pop into existence. From nothing. You know what a good definition of evolution is? Evolutionism is? You've got to write this one down. You don't have to. It'll be in your notes. <laughs> but you'll remember it. And I'm sure you'll share it with your kids and grandkids. All right, here's a good definition for evolution. Goo. Goo became you by way of the zoo. And it ain't true. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> the Bible tells us of God's creative work in a way that people of all generations, all ages, my little, one of my little six-year-old granddaughters goes to Christian school, and she has memorized almost this whole first chapter. It's just amazing. You know, just blah, 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 blah. Even little kids can understand this, especially that first sentence, people of all ages, nationalities, education levels can understand this. It says that all things came into existence in the beginning. And in Hebrew, in the beginning is one word, bereshith, one word. It is the, the counterpart of the Greek, you know, when John and John 1, 1 says in the beginning, if he had written in Hebrew, he would have said bereshith. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, etc. Um, it's in the Greek counterpart is an arche, from which we get archaic. You know, in the archaic beginning, it's where we get archaeology. The first words of John's New Testament gospel unveiled something about the creation that had been hidden in the shadows of the Genesis record, and that something was actually someone. 
He is the Logos. The word. Logos is the Greek word for word. He is the Memra. M-E-M-R-A. That is the Hebrew word. We're going to talk more about that. For word. He is the word, the logos, the memra, through and by whom God created everything. Who created everything? The word. The word. God used the word. And the word is (laughs) Christ. You see, although the universe had a beginning, the word was already there. He was with God and he was God. And then we find out that the God word was made, you know, he he was made in flesh and he dwelt among us. He took on humanity. The only member of the Godhead who ever took upon himself the likeness of man was who? The Lord Jesus, the, the eternal son of God. So the eternal word, logos, memra, became the living, tangible word. The Shekinah glory of God veiled his brightness in a human body. Remember that one time he let that brightness shine out on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, while no one has ever seen God, Jesus made him known because he is the exact imprint of his nature. The express image of God, isn't he? So he is the one who made God known to man. So every time we read in the creation account the words, and God said, and by the way, there are ten of them. Ten times it says, and God said. They call those the ten commandments of creation. Every time we read those words, it was the pre-incarnate Christ, the word, commanding creation into existence he is the first cause of everything outside of himself and this is confirmed to us in the new testament by the inspired writings of the apostle paul who said in colossians 1:16 he said he was talking about christ for by him were all things created that are in heaven And that are in earth, visible and invisible. And then he goes on to talk about principalities and powers. And he says, all things were created by him and, what's the next? For him. You see, not only was everything created by Jesus, but everything was created for Jesus. Now let that soak in, okay? We are not here, and that includes us. We are not here. We do not exist for ourselves. A lot of people live their lives that way, don't they? Totally about themselves. But we're not here for that purpose. We are him for, here for him. He created us to have fellowship with him and to glorify his magnificent attributes forever and ever. That is our purpose. And if we let that sink in, I think our lives would be a whole lot different than even as Christians they are. So I won't get to preaching. Now, here's something. How many of you, Carol, Helene, maybe, have ever heard of the tar gums? Not the tar heels. <laughs> the tar gums. <laughs> T-A-R-G-U-M-S. Jewish targums. No? No? Wow. Nobody. Anybody else ever hear of them? 
This is fantastic. It's really sad, though, because nobody yesterday did either. And before last week, I hadn't either. (laughs) And that's a shame. That is a crime, really. Um, The Jewish Targums are old Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible that were commonly used all the way up into the first century. Remember, when we studied Daniel, the Jews were carried out of Israel into Babylon, where they were for 70 years, and some of them stayed a lot longer than that, right? So after 70 years, most of the Jewish people, except for the priests, stopped knowing Hebrew. And instead, they picked up the, um, the common language of that day, which was Aramaic. There were different dialects of Aramaic, but um, they started speaking Aramaic. And so when they were in the synagogues and the priests would read the Hebrew scripture, they couldn't really understand it. So some scholarly Jews got together and they translated the scriptures into Aramaic. You get it? Okay, so that's, that's what, they, what they are. They're Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible. Well, according to the Jewish Targums, and there are more than one translation, um, there's two very, very more popular ones, but there's more than that. But in the Targums, God's word was referred to as the Memra, M-E-M-R-A. And that comes from both the Hebrew and Aramaic root word, M-R. You know, there's no vowels in Hebrew so, or Aramaic. So it's just M-R, comes from M-R, and they just say Memra. And it actually means the word. It means speech or command. So I'm saying this because throughout Genesis 1, when God spoke and God said, the, the Targums would say, the word of the Lord said, the Memra spoke. The concept was that the Memra, the word, was the divine mediator between God and man. So this term was used in the Targums as a substitute for the Lord's theophanies. Every time God, they, they thought it was kind of not good for God to appear as a man, you know, with uh, anthropomorphic appearances. And, and they thought it was disrespectful to say God appeared. You know, like when God appeared um, and wrestled with Jacob or when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush or when he appeared to, uh, to Abraham and ate with him with two angels. They don't refer to that as Yahweh. They'll say the Memra appeared. <laughs> ah, we know that to be true because who was it really? The Word, the Lord Jesus, the Logos, the Memra. The Targums taught that the Memra, the Word of the Lord, was to be worshiped and served and obeyed and prayed to as God, and that the Memra actually reigns on heaven's throne. The great Jewish philosopher Philo, P-H-I-L-O, of Alexandria, fluctuated. He oscillated in his thoughts about the Memra. He he didn't know whether the Memra, the word, was a separate entity such as God's son 
or was actually one with God. Hmm, very smart man, right? There were rabbis before the coming of Christ who taught that God is one in three persons. Well, what has happened then? Why does nobody in here know about this? You know, the Targums. Well, I forgot to tell you another thing. It was also used every time um, it spoke of the Shekinah glory of God. And it was used to um, speak of wisdom personified, divine wisdom personified. But because of Christian doctrine concerning Jesus as the human manifestation of the Memra, the word, the Logos, rabbinic theology now totally avoids any use of that term. It's like, don't read Isaiah 53 and don't talk about the Memra. And they don't use the Targums. The Targums are there. It's a shame there are more ancient copies of the Targums than there are of any other translation of the Bible. More than, the you know, with the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything. Um, but the, the Jewish rabbis have silenced all that ever since the coming of Christ. Even though the Targums are filled with the Memra, the Talmud, which is Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament, doesn't talk about it at all. You won't read anything about the Memra in the Talmud. So the rabbis have suppressed the teaching and concept of the Memra. Because if they didn't, it would almost be an outright admission that Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. But in Genesis, it was the Memra who spoke creation. Well, the profound and unapologetic declaration of Genesis 1-1, as I said earlier, is also scientific. (laughs) And why wouldn't it be? Who is the real author of science? Men have perverted science quite a bit, but the true science, the author, is God himself. It's the science of men that sooner or later catches up with the science of God. You know, it took men thousands of years to realize that the earth is shaped as a sphere. They thought it was what? Flat. But if they had just checked out the scriptures, they could have found that out long before. (laughs) because it says he sits on the circle of the earth. Uh, And it's stated in one of the the earliest book of the Bible, Job. Actually, it took scientists a long time to discover that the earth was not sitting on the back of an elephant. (laughs) There actually is a religion, I think it was Hinduism, said the earth is on the back of an elephant. Well, what's the elephant standing on? I always want to... (laughs) Or, you know, Atlas holding up the earth. (laughs) But if they had checked the scriptures, I think it's Isaiah. Um, No, it's Job. Job 26.7 says that the earth hangs in space on nothing. Hmm? Amazing, right? And there's so many other places. Well, Herbert Spencer was considered by secular scientists to be um, just fantastic philosopher. He was actually a sociologist. Um, and a scientist, but they just lifted him up on a pedestal because he discovered the five categories of that which is knowable in the universe. Here they are. Time, force, action, space, and matter. 
Well, big deal. God said that in Genesis 1.1. Here we go. In the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, the heavens, space, and earth, matter. Time, force, action, space, matter. Mr. Spencer, did you cheat? (laughs) All right. Well, something fascinating about the seven words... Of Genesis 1-1, seven, not in English, but in Hebrew, there are seven words that open up the scripture. Actually, Genesis is full of sevens. The first, the creation account is full of sevens. That's in your notes. I'm not going to take the time now. So is the last book of the Bible, right? Why so many sevens in the first and the last book and all in between? Right. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. Well, the Bible opens with a sentence that contains seven words. And I am not very good at Hebrew at all, so um, don't make fun of me. But here is it, here it is in Hebrew. Bereshith bara Elohim al-fatav hasamayim wayet hares. I probably put a Greek accent on all that. <laughs> Was that a Greek accent? Thank you. Thank you. I had to cheat and look at it. (laughs) All right. So what's interesting about that sentence is the middle word of that sentence, which isn't really a word. It's simply the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Alf, Aleph, and Tav. Aleph and Tav. That's like A to Z for us. But... um, It's not the same. But it would be like us putting in the middle of that sentence A and Z. In the beginning, God, A-Z, created the heaven and the earth. Now, here's what happened. Because those two letters, Aleph and Tav, don't make a word, they're not a word, they're just those two letters, all of the English translations have omitted them taken them out. That's why you don't see an A and a Z or an Aleph and a Tav in your Bible, do you? Does anybody? Unless you have a Hebrew. Do you, do you have one in your Hebrew Bible? Check it out. Yeah. Yes, check it out. Um, but all the English translations took out those two letters. Um, now, what did the resurrected Lord Jesus tell John on the Isle of Patmos? He told him, I am the Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end, you know, the first and the last. Now, if he, he was speaking there Greek, but what if he had been speaking Hebrew? He would have said, I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, right? The word, the Logos, the Memra, who spoke creation into existence. He is the beginning, the end, the first and the last. He is the word, From Genesis to Revelation, and guess what else he is? He's all the letters in between. (laughs) From Aleph to Tav, I'm probably not saying that right, but Alpha to Omega, A to Z. Because words are made up of letters, right? He's all of that. And isn't it interesting that it identifies in the beginning, Aleph, Tav. 
Alpha Omega, God. It's kind of like identifying who God is there. And who is it? Jesus. He tells us he's the Alpha and Omega. Another, and now these Aleph Tavs show up all over the Hebrew te- uh, Old Testament. We don't have them, which is a shame. We don't have them in our English translation. But they show up in the most amazing places. And I'm going to tell you one other that is just a heartburn situation. Zechariah 12.10, where um, it says that the house of Israel, the house of David, Israel, this is at the Lord's second coming, shall look upon Aleph Tav, me, whom they pierced, (laughs) and mourn for me as an only son. It's identifying him. They will look upon Aleph Tav, me. It's amazing. And we're going to be talking about more of those as we do our study of Old Testament Christology. Well, on the Emmaus Road, the resurrected Christ had rebuked two of his disciples, calling them fools and slow of heart for not believing all the Old Testament scripture, which includes what? The book of Genesis. All the scripture includes Genesis. And yet we find ourselves today, sad, living in an age of apostasy and skepticism, an age in which the Bible has lost its authority and lost it in the minds of many professing Christians. That's the sad part. I mean, we don't expect the world to appreciate the Bible, but Christians have lost in their minds the Bible's authority. And a lot of them, in fear of being labeled ignorant or unscientific, and the bottom line of that is pride, really, but a lot of leaders in the churches, especially here in America, have decided to take the entire Genesis creation account you know, of six literal days and Adam and Eve in a garden and the fall and the serpent and, of course, the flood. They've decided to take that out of the realm of the literal and the historical and instead put it into the realm of allegorical poetry or ancient folklore. Others unsuccessfully try to compromise with evolutionism through any one of a number of anti-biblical theories, such as the gap theory, which was really popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible, a footnote, Um, or what is called progressive creationism, or the day-age theory, or theistic evolutionism. Now, if you want to get my first volume on Genesis, when we study Genesis, I get into detail about how all of those theories are not biblical and they're not scientific. The geologists throw them away because they support catastrophism. They say that the original earth created by God suffered a cataclysm when Satan fell. And then before you read verse 2, when God recreates the earth, um, they stick all the millions and billions of years that made up the geological, you know, uh, ages there. They stick all the billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. But what happens is they don't accommodate the geological ages at all because they're based on uniformity 
Unitarianism, that all things continue the same as they have been from the beginning, whereas the gap theory and all these others have to have cataclysm, and you can't have both. So they, they don't satisfy anybody, and I know that's complicated, and so I'm going to give you in your notes the gap theory, and I'm going to show how it's totally wrong, because it's death, death and fossils all before Adam ever sinned. And sin came into the world through the fall of Adam. So, you know, you just can't compromise. They tried to compromise. If you talk to somebody just on the surface level, they say, oh, well, that sounds good. Yeah, we don't have to sound like we're dummies and we're not scientific. We can throw the billions of years in between those two verses. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Just trust me and then read the notes. <laughs> All right. Well, the Lord, the Lord Jesus anticipated our day, which is why he took careful pains to emphasize his absolute belief in the historicity and the authenticity authenticity of the book of Genesis. You know that Jesus either quoted directly from or used an application from every one of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Um, and thereby, when he did that, did he talk about Adam and Eve? Did he talk about Noah? Did, yeah, as in the days of Noah. Did he talk about Jonah? That was a sign for his resurrection. I mean, he, he was putting his divine seal of endorsement on all the books, well, of the whole scripture, but particularly on the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. Remember speaking to the religious leaders, he said about Moses, if ye believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? You know, if Jesus was wrong about Adam and Eve and the garden and the fall and the serpent and all that, I mean, he actually talked to the serpent and temptation for 40 days. If, if he was deceived by all that, and thought it was literal and it was really a myth or it was really just poetry, then is he really Lord? Can he be our Lord and Savior? No. Okay, so back to Genesis 1.1. We're looking for Jesus, okay, in the Old Testament. Well, there he is in the very first name of God for God given in the scripture, Elohim. It's not God as we see in English. If you're looking in Hebrew, it's Elohim. And again, this is in the very first verse. Elohim is prominently used for God. That's a name used for God, especially with regard to his creation work. Now, an interesting thing about this name, and you know this if you've been in this Bible study any time, is that Elohim is used with a singular verb. Whenever you see Elohim, it's always used with a singular verb. Even though the I am ending Elohim is plural. It's like putting ES on the end or S on the name, end of a word. So it's a plural name with a singular meaning, which is called a uniplural proper noun. And it is a very strong testimony for the uniplurality of the Godhead. God is one, and yet he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he possesses three power attributes. He is all-powerful, omnipotent, he's all-knowing, omniscient, and he's omnipresent. He's all-present, present everywhere. But that's different from pantheism, and I explain that in the notes too. It's not the same as pantheism. Um, it's impossible, really, it's impossible for us in our finite minds to completely understand the concept of an eternal, self-existing, transcend transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. 
You know, Martin Luther said that if you do not believe in the triune God, you'll lose your soul. But if you try to understand the triune God, you'll lose your mind. <laughs> we, we believe in him because, um, well, we believe by faith. And we believe, and our faith isn't totally blind. We believe in, because of um, what he's revealed to us in his word. And by what he's created in the universe and by what we experience of him when he indwells us. The only alternative to faith in God is the concept of an eternal self-existing universe. So the choice is simply eternal God or eternal matter. That's it. That's the choice. However, the concept of eternal matter counters the scientific law of law, I mean, of, um, of cause and effect. You know, all the laws of the universe were created by God. He's a God of order, so he put in moral laws and he put in natural laws, such as the law of gravity. We all know about the law of gravity, don't we? Um, the, the laws of thermodynamics. There's laws that operate, that's why they can, they can tell how long it's going to take a rocket to get to Jupiter. Because of the laws of the universe. Everything's decent and in order. Well, there is this law of cause and effect. <clears throat> because of that, since random particles of matter could not by themselves generate a complex, orderly, intelligible word and universe, um, to say nothing of the living persons, you and I, within the universe, who are able to apply intelligence to the understanding of this complex order of the universe, because of that law, we can say these things. And I don't know if you got your homework questions, but I might give you a few answers here for some of them. Let's say, you know, we see effects, all right? We see effects in the world. So we say, well, there goes that truck. There must be a cause, a first cause for that truck. Well, there is. You know, it was made in the factory somewhere. So we look at the universe and we say, for example, um, where did morality come from? We know that every people, no matter where they live, they have morals. Like it's always wrong to murder. And, you know, just there's morals in, within us. And so we say, well, where did morality, there has to be a first cause for morality. First cause of morality would be something that is moral or someone who is moral. Is matter moral? Does this podium have any morality? Okay, what about the first cause for love? Where did love come from? Matter? You think this thing loves me? <laughs> I love it because I can hide behind it, but it doesn't love me back. So the first cause for love has to be someone who's loving. What about life? The first cause for life has to be someone who's living. What about limitless space? Has to come from someone who's infinite, eternal, time. Where time come from? Someone who is eternal. That give you enough answers? <laughs> or truth. Where did truth come from? Someone who's truthful. You see, that's the law of cause and effect. Scientifically, the concept of eternal matter is impossible. A living, personal, eternal creator is the only adequate first cause to produce the effects that are all around us and even within us. The creation narrative presents God's process of forming, first three days forming, second three days 
filling the earth. In its initial state, now he wasn't finished, but when he first began on day one, the earth was a blob. <laughs> Talking about goo and blobs. Okay, The earth was a blob of unshaped, uninhabited matter that was without form and void. And there was darkness over the face of the deep. You know that the earth was created before the sun? There was darkness, total darkness. The sun was not created until day four. Now, what's that do to the Big Bang Theory? Hmm? The earth was before the sun. Well, as I said, the darkness was absolute. There wasn't even the faintest, faintest glimmer of light. Also, the earth was completely covered with water. Without form, motion, light, void of any life, there was nothing on the earth, no creatures, no plants, nothing. We could say that earth was dead. I used to go around <clears throat> a long time ago and give my testimony at Christian women's clubs. And I would use the creation account to talk about myself. Because before I was saved, I was a blob. <laughs> I was, there was darkness upon the face of my you know, deep. <laughs> and I was void. I had no purpose for my life. I didn't know where I was going. I hadn't been set on, in motion on the right path with the sun as my focus. And, you know, I just used that. And then one day God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's a great analogy for salvation. Um, but we could say the earth was dead. But there was hope for that formless blob of void matter existing in a state of utter darkness and death. And the hope was twofold. The hope for earth was the spirit of God and the quickening power of the word of God, the Memra. In Genesis 2b, we're introduced to the third person of the Trinity. Actually, he was already in verse 1 as part of Elohim, right? But we're officially introduced to him in verse 2, the spirit of God. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. And it can be translated as either breath or wind. It was the spirit who moved across the face of the waters to perform his part in the work of forming earth. Now, the Hebrew word for moved is very similar to ruach. It's rachaf. And it only appears three other times in the Old Testament scriptures. Twice it is translated as shake. And once it is translated as fluttered. Commentators describe the word as something like a mother hen hovering over and fluttering her feathers of protection over her baby chicks. That's the way they describe that word. She's overshadowing them. The word implies a rapid back and forth movement. And the scientific term for this is vibrated. To be set in motion, the earth needed an omnipotent mover, an energizer. And this was the work of God the Holy Spirit. The transmission of energy... This is a little scientific, but the transmission of energy in the operating of the universe is in the form of waves. There are heat waves, sound waves, um, light waves, all kind of waves. Waves are rapid back and forth movements generally produced by vibratory motion 
of a wave generator of some type. You know, energy cannot create itself. So it's very appropriate to read that the first impartation of energy into the universe was accomplished by the vibrating movement of an all-powerful generator. (laughs) We could call him an all-powerful source. Interestingly, this vibrating rachaf movement of the spirit was also the first step involved in the incarnation of the Son of God. Do you remember what the Holy Spirit did? He came in power and he hovered over, brooded over, overshadowed Mary, perhaps protecting her from the evil one. I don't know, but it's the same idea. And any of you who are born again, and I hope everyone in here is born again by having understood your sin nature your need to repent, your need for the Savior, and you've invited him into your heart to save you, you also can attest to this moving of the Spirit. When he first convicted you of your sin, and then he moved into your life, didn't he? I'll never forget that day as long as I live. All of a sudden, the sky was brighter, the colors were bright. I mean, it was just like, whoa, I got energized. He comes in, he indwells us, and he infuses us with eternal life. And then he energizes us to live for the glory of the Lord. And this is why um, the Lord said to Nicodemus that he must be born again. In other words, he needed a second Genesis. He needed the Spirit's act of regeneration in order to make him a new creation. To go from being spiritually dead, uh, you know, without form and without purpose and all that to spiritually alive, to being brought out of the kingdom of darkness and death and into the kingdom of light and life. And then I thought, too, about when Jesus, oh, so much, he wanted to hover over and protect Jerusalem and the people of Israel like a mother hen over her little chickies, didn't he? Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what he wanted to do. But they would not. They would not. Well... Light. It was the powerful memra of God, the word of God, who said, let there be light. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's light, let light be. (laughs) Let light be. And then suddenly, what? There was light. Just that fast. The darkness was gone. But it wasn't due to the sun or the moon that reflects the light of the sun or to the stars. And this is still this is still day one. Those things were not created until day four. There was light in the world before the sun. Hmm. Elohim, and we'll get back to that subject. Elohim then separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Okay. Well, this tells this dark light cycle tells us that when the Holy Spirit moved over the face of the earth it set it in motion it energized it because it's on it's spinning on its axis now to have this day night cycle okay now the light the light is mysterious 
Could it be, and I'm asking this as a question, could it be that the light of day one, you know, you can't have light in the universe. Well, there was light in the third heaven where God resides because he is light, okay? But you can't have light in the universe without space and matter because light has to, you can't see it without space and matter. That's scientific, but anyhow. Um, So could this be the first pre-incarnate manifestation of the Shekinah glory to the physical universe now that it had space and matter and time. You know, John 1, 4 tells us that Jesus is the true light of whom the world was made. So it would not be surprising if he was the source of the pre-sun light since guess what? He is also going to be the source with his father of the post-sun light in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, in the eternal state where we will abide forever and ever, there is not going to be a sun and a moon and stars. There's not going to be any need for that man-made light, not man-made, God-made light, but there's not going to be any need for it because the glory of the Lamb And the glory of the Father will be the source of light. And there will be no night. No more separation, darkness from light. No more separation. Well, God saw the light, and what did he say? He said it was good. There is yet another appearance of the Aleph and the Tav in this sentence, which is interesting. It says in the Hebrew, and God saw, Elohim saw, Aleph Tav, the light, that it was good. Do you know what the first recorded words of God the Father to the pre-incarnate Son were? First time he spoke to the Son in his pre-incarnation, he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is my Son and he is good. He saw the light and he called it good. Well, the light was separated from the darkness. Not only was Jesus, the light who came into the world to lighten all men, completely separate from sinners, holy, blameless, um, and, and separate from the darkness of fallen humanity because he came without the Adamic sin nature, but he is also the great separator of mankind. It's not his will to be, but nonetheless, he does separate, just like the two thieves on, the, on, on either side of him on the crosses, right? He separates man. Now, he would love to have all men united in him, but that's not the way because not everybody puts their faith in him. You know, to them that perish, the cross is foolishness. But to those of us who believe, it's the power of God. So he separates men in this life and in the life to come. You know, you can choose to have light forever and ever, his light, or you can choose to, you know, you can reject the light and live in utter darkness forever and ever. So he's the great separator. God's principle of separation is presented throughout the creation account. He also separated the waters of the firmament, and he divided the waters of earth from the land of earth. He even made every living creature after his kind, right, separating so that his principle of separation exists in every, every part of his creation work. So, 
it was on the third day that Elohim commanded the waters of the earth. Remember, the earth is just covered with waters. He commanded the waters to gather, and he called them seas. And when the waters gathered, for the first time, dry ground appeared, and he called it earth. Look at verses 9 and 10. So it was on the third day that the earth resurrected up out of the waters that had entombed it, and God declared it to be good. And immediately the earth, he filled the earth with living green things. He created a gorgeous garden of beauty that we can't even begin to imagine. And the Lord was doing all of this. Why did he create the universe and specifically earth? Why? He was preparing a place for man. And he prepared a place, I mean, six days and, there, and then it was prepared for man. But what, can you imagine the place he's preparing for us today? Because he's been working on it for 2,000 years. <laughs> Streets of gold. I mean, I just can't even. That's why it says, I can't imagine. You know, we can't imagine. But he is preparing for us another place yet today. Well, that was the third day the earth resurrected. There was another third day that brought forth life to earth. On that third day, God himself burst forth in resurrected glory from a tomb located in the midst of a beautiful garden, and immediately the earth started to fill with life in the hearts and the souls of those who believed on him. You see, as the gospel seed was planted, fruit abounded. On the day of Pentecost, how many? How much fruit? 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost. And so it's not just coincidence that the words seed and fruit appear for the first time at this point in the creation account. If you look at verses 11 and 12. Placed into each fully created, matured type of plant organism was a type of seed or a spore that was divinely programmed to enable that organism to re reproduce fruit of its own kind. Now the Lord himself is refer referred to as the promised seed, isn't he? The promised seed of the woman. Because he was willing to give his life and to be planted in the, in the ground as a corn of wheat, so to speak, for three days, he became the first fruit <laughs> of the resurrection. And ever since, he has brought forth much fruit after his kind. You see, when you are born again, you're in Christ. You're after his kind. One day we'll be like him, won't we? Well, God's ten times repeated words after his kind, they call that the Ten Commandments of Reproduction. Ten times, he says, after his kind are the rock that crushes the entire evolutionary theory. Almighty God himself decreed that there would be no change from one kind to another. Now, there may be innumerable changes within any one given kind, but no kind is ever changed to another kind. 
God is a God of order, not chaos. He wanted to make sure the farmers, like Terry, didn't have to worry about their cows, that a horse might escape from their neighbor, break into their cows, and they would pretty soon have horses. <laughs> or what? <Ow>. Or hows. <laughs> um, now, so in other words, there are many, many uh, um, vertical types of things, but no horse. All right, so there's a lot of different kinds of fishes, right? <laughs> but no fish vertically is ever going to change into a reptile. I don't care how many billions of years you sit there and watch that fish. Is not going to change into a reptile. Um, now, the word for kind in the in the Hebrew is mean. Like, like, wow, you're really mean. Except it's spelled M-I-N, and it don't just think of species. You know the taxonomical, what do they call it? Hierarchy, kingdom, and you know that you learned back in your class. <laughs> um, the word mean can go all the way up to order. So it's, it's a broad enough term so that it includes species, genus, family, and order. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry your pretty little heads about it. But this is important for somebody maybe listening to the tape. So uh, the theory that all living things have evolved from a common ancestry, you know, that goo, <laughs> is refuted by God's words after his kind. Everything didn't come from a common ancestor. Everything came from a common designer. That's why there's so much similarity when you look at different things. You say, well, that has to have the same designer, but the world, you know, it depends on your worldview, doesn't it? Oh, no, everything came from the same ancestor. Well, man did. We did come from Adam and Eve, but not from the animal world. All right, so God formed the earth in the first three days, then he filled it in the, in the second three days. Just as the darkness and the motionlessness and the formlessness of earth were remedied by God's word, the memra, so was earth's emptiness remedied by the memra, the word. When he spoke, it was done. That's called dictum factum. That's Latin. You come here, you learn a lot of different languages, don't you? <laughs> And it says in Hebrew, um, at Psalm 33, it says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And you know what that is in the Targums? The Memra, by the Memra were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. God spoke again on the fourth day. And created the greater light to rule the day. That's the sun. The lesser light, the moon to rule the night. And the stars also. Look at that, verse 16. The stars also. Do you know how many billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of stars there are? No, you don't. <laughs> Either do I. <laughs> but God's just said three words. The stars also. But do you know <laughs> that there are 50 chapters in the Bible on the tabernacle, three words, I don't it might only be two in Hebrew, about the stars, and 50 chapters on the tabernacle. 
Why do you think that is? What was God? What is God's emphasis? Is it the gospel or the galaxies? People or planets? Souls or stars? He spent 50 chapters on the tabernacle because it's a whole picture of the redemptive work of the coming sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. That's what the whole purpose is. The whole Bible is about Jesus and his redemptive work. That is just amazing to me. Um, The difference there. All right. So God spoke again on day five and he filled the waters of earth with living creatures and the skies with flying creatures. On day six, he commanded the earth to be filled with all kinds of animals. But he wasn't finished. His whole purpose for the universe and in particular for earth. You know, he put earth in the just exact spot, didn't he? If it was a little closer to the sun, we would all burn up. If it was a little further, we'd all freeze to death. Perfect, perfect, perfect location. He designed it just perfectly to be the home for his crowning creation, man. And we'll discuss that probably next time in uh, our lesson to come, the creation of man. I'm not going to get into that today. Okay, so let's fast forward from the creation to the time when Jesus entered the earth, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator himself walked this planet, and he wanted to show the people of Israel that he is their creator, that he is God, okay? So that then they could then share that with the rest of the world. So if you're the creator and you come and you're on earth, you know, walking in the cool of the day with man, (laughs) and you want to prove to men that you are the creator, what would you do? Well, you would do things just exactly like Jesus did. You would stand in the temple and you say, I am the light of the world. He that cometh to me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Who but a madman or the true light of the world would say that, right? Who else would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What else did he do to prove who he was? Uh, Well, he would back up his claims to being one with God by instantly being able to still the roaring winds and the raging sea with a single command. The Memrah, the word of the Lord. Peace, be still. And what happened? Instant calm. He would prove who he was by turning water into wine and forgetting the whole grape process. (laughs) Uh, He could command fish to fill nets. He could rebuke demons and diseases and deformities and even death and and have instant obedience. Who but the creator could create thousands of loaves of bread with just five little loaves? Who but the creator could give sight to one born blind or to give give a, a, a last stage leper instant baby smooth skin or restore, restore a withered hand or raise to life a man dead for four days? Who but God could forgive sin or heal from a distance or walk on water or ascend bodily up into the clouds? Who who could do that but the creator, God? And who but the creator of the seventh day of rest could say to those who were weighed down, you know, with the burden of trying to obey all the laws, And he could give them the invitation, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Who but the Lord of the Sabbath could claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath? 
All right, now I'm going to finish with this, and this is great. You're going to love this. This is the best part. You would expect that a product made by an intelligent being, that that product would reflect, give some insight into the nature of the creator, the one who designed it. And this is what it says in Romans 1.20, actually. It says that God imprinted something about himself in the things that he created so that all humanity, no matter where they live, what generation, where they live on planet Earth, they could see his invisible attributes in his creation. They could see his eternal power and his Godhead. Now, as I said earlier, the concept of the Trinity is very difficult to understand. So people have used examples like an egg. You've heard that one, right? Trying God's like an egg. You know, it's one egg, but it consists of three parts, the shell, the yolk, and the white. Um, Or like a triangle. Well, those are bad examples. I mean, they might be as close as we can think, but they're really, they're not, they're they're not really as close as we can think. I'm going to give you something better. Um, but they're, they're really triads and not triune objects because you can break apart an egg, can't you? Yeah, well, you do it all the time. Every time you crack an egg, you break it apart. Um, so they're poor examples because they're triads, not triunities. They're composed of three parts that can be separated into individual compartments. On the other hand, a trinity, a tr- I always like to say a triunity, triune God, although composed of three different things, cannot be disconnected from the whole, the unit. So the most precise illustration of God's triune nature that we have is not the egg. It's this triune-verse, triune-verse that we live in, that he created. You see, it's a unit verse, a universe. It's one unit, but it consists of three distinguishable entities, and they are space, matter, and time. And each one of those permeates and represents the whole. In other words, the universe is not partly composed of space and partly composed of matter and partly composed of time which would be a trio universe or a triad universe. Instead, it's a tri-unity universe with each part comprising the whole. So that the universe is all space, all matter, and all time. By the way, energy is a form of matter. And this is what scientists call the space-matter-time continuum. Those three components now cannot exist without the others. You can't have space without matter. You can't have matter without time. You can't have time without space. You have to have all three. That's why God on day one made all three simultaneously at the same time. Furthermore, the space-matter-time continuum is a trinity of trinities. And this is really fascinating. That it further reveals the fingerprints of the triune God on his creation. You see, space is a triunity that consists of three dimensions height, width, and depth, which all permeate space at the same time. Although height is distinct from width, and width is distinct from depth, and depth is distinct from height, yet they do not form three spaces. 
They form one space. And they all share the same nature. And guess what their nature is? Space. (laughs) Now, space is like God the Father. He is the invisible, omnipresent space of the universe. All right, this is all going to fall together, so hang in there. Now, matter, that was space, height, depth, width. Matter is also a trinity of trinities because matter consists of energy, which is matter generated, motion, which is matter manifested, and phenomena, which is matter experienced. I had to do a lot of homework this week. The basic element of matter is what? What? The tiny things and everything. Yeah, it's even in the air and space. Atoms. What do, go back to your high school classes, what do atoms consist of? Three parts. You've got protons, neutrons, and electrons. Now, solid matter, oh, and matter comes in three states. Solid, liquid, and gas. Solid matter is not the same as liquid matter. Liquid matter is not the same as gas matter. Gas matter is not the same as solid matter, etc. Um, but they all do share the same nature, which is matter. <laughs> now, invisible space is only known by the presence of matter in it. We wouldn't know how far away the galaxies are if there weren't planets and stars, matter in it. So, um, it was God the Son who took upon himself matter in his incarnation. He revealed the existence of the invisible God, the Father, and he is the one who made God tangible. So, he is the visible one. God is comparable to space. The Son is comparable to matter. Now, what's left? There's a third element. Time, and time is also a trinity because time is measured in past, present, and future. The future is the unseen source of time which is manifested moment by moment as it continuously flows through the present to immediately become the past. And I had to read that one. (laughs) All right, each tense of time is actually simultaneous at any one moment so that The three times are really one. And of course, they all share the same nature, which is time. Okay, now think about that. Any one moment, here we are. We're in the present, but the past just became the present. Now the present just became the future, all in a single moment. Try to wrap your mind around that one, too. I mean, Martin Luther says we would lose our mind. Um, (laughs) So we we cannot see time. Well, you can look at a clock. Uh Uh-oh. Shouldn't have done it. <laughs> we cannot understand time, and we cannot control time, but boy, oh boy, can we experience time, can't we? <laughs> God the Spirit is like the time of the universe because he makes possible to experience, he makes it possible for us to experience God. Isn't that beautiful? So the physical universe is a, Trinity of trinities, which may not prove God to the unbeliever, 
But it is certainly remarkable, and it gives great testimony to a triune creator who made his creation to reflect himself and to help us to understand him. Actually, scientists have a very, very difficult time trying to explain why everything in the universe is in threes. They just don't get it. (laughs) It's so simple to see. All right, real quickly, I'm going to give you a review of creation week so you can see even more of God's fingerprints. Day one, God created the triune unity of space, time, and matter, and each of them is a trinity within a trinity, okay? We already talked about that, but what we didn't discuss is another triunity created on day one, which was light, motion, and form. Nor did we discuss the fact that there are three forces at work in creation. They are nuclear, gravitational, and electromagnetic. Day two, God made three areas with regard to the earth. Waters below the firmament, the firmament, waters above the firmament. Day three, God completed creating three areas of activity with regard to the earth. The atmosphere, the seas, and the land. Mentioning the seas, it is interesting to know that water is capable of three forms all found on planet earth. And they are ice, liquid, and vapor. And mentioning the earth, did you know that there are only three types of rocks found on earth? Igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic. Also, not only does the outside of the earth consist of three parts, the atmosphere, the land masses, and the waters, but the inside of the earth is divided into three parts, the mantle, the outer core, and the inner core. We're still on day three. God then made three types of vegetations, grasses, herb-yielding seed, and fruit tree-yielding fruit. Day four, God filled the skies above the earth with three named celestial bodies. There was the sun, the moon, and the stars also. (laughs) He caused the earth, which is the third planet from the sun. You think that's coincidence? He caused the earth to begin to move simultaneously in three different ways. It spins on its axis, it revolves around the sun, and then moves within the Milky Way galaxy. Three different ways of travel. Then on day five, God's creative work consisted of three basic types of living creatures. Great whales, which is a Hebrew word that includes all the big sea creatures, every living creature that moveth in the waters, and every winged fowl. So he made three types of creatures, sea creatures, land creatures, and air creatures. Of course, land creatures he created on day six. The Lord filled the earth with land creatures, which, of course, he categorized into three main types. Cattle, which is domestic animals, creeping things, and beasts of the the earth, which are wild animals. Now, man who God created on the latter half of day six in the image of himself, the only creature he did in the image of himself, is a tripartite being. And probably the best example of all, because we consist, I'm one person, but guess what? Consists of body, soul, and spirit. There are also three stages of our existence, life, death, and afterlife. Um, Man's capabilities is a combination of word, thought, or deed. God designed the family, and guess what? Got news for you. 
The family consists of male, female, children. And we could go on and on, but let's stop with that to be continued. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Let's pray. Father, I knew we were going to see Jesus on every page of scripture, but this just astounded me this week how many places he is just in the creation account. Your son is part of you, Elohim, the uniplural proper noun that tells us about him. He's in the Aleph Tav. He's in the spoken word of the Targums, the Memra, and the Logos of the New Testament, the word who was with you and is you. He's in the pre-sun light, uh, the pre-moon, pre-sun light. He is the light of the world. He's in the third day resurrection of earth, coming up out of the water and springing to life with seeds and fruit. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. He's in the creation work, which he later displayed in his earthly ministry. He is demonstrating the triunity of your Godhead in his triune universe. He's also the great separator of man, of light from darkness and heaven and hell. And his cross is, is the divider right there. He's, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He said, come unto me that you might have rest and you might have life and you might have light. So, Lord, I pray that every woman here has indeed experienced her second genesis. Oh, we love you. I ask that you go with each woman. Help her to be like the moonlight, the reflected light of the sun, S-O-N, in these next two weeks and bring us all back safely and soundly and healthy and serving you and loving you and understanding that we were created for you. And we love you and we pray in your name. Amen.